You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Jonathan Ball, and uh, I do, uh, I guess, a variety of things. I'm a sessional instructor in Winnipeg teaching literature, film, and creative writing. Um, I actually do primarily experimental poetry and fiction. So I've got a number of kind of experimental uh, poetry books out. Uh, this Crowley book is my fourth book. My three other books are all, you know, creative writing. I- I've done a book of sort of a science fiction novel with no plot or characters, called Ex Machina. I did a book of plays that are impossible to produce called Clockfire. I did a book about um, language and film and violence, but they're all you know, poems, like a poem about the movie Cycle, uh, as if watched by a psychotic uh, Bates-like you know, spectator. And then Crime Wave uh, is, the John Pieces Crime Wave is my fourth book, but my first, uh, I guess to say, academic uh, book. So I do a sort of variety of things, but uh, that's the sort of core thing that I've been engaged in, doing these sort of books about uh, or just engaging in kind of experimental uh, artistic practice. Looking around on your website, I saw something that really caught my eye, which was called Why Poetry Sucks. Mm. That's what I'm doing uh, right now is I'm putting, actually putting out two books this year. The Pays book is uh, the one that you know, is out now already. And then coming out shortly is a anthology that I'm co-editing, which is that uh, Why Poetry Sucks. So it's a it's a kind of a cheeky title for an anthology of experimental, kind of humorous experimental poetry, either experimental poetry that's you know funny, um, or that is just engaging with some humorous techniques. So and it's all it's all sort of Canadian poetry. It's Canadian experimental poetry anthology, but it's kind of organized around this trope of humor since there's this perception that experimental poetry or experimental art is not funny. Uh, I just kind of wanted to work against that a little bit, so me and my co-editor, a guy named Ryan Fitzpatrick, are putting that together. Um, So that's, you know, we're just kind of proofing it. I was actually working earlier today just looking at the proofs, and it's going to be out very quickly. So it's been a busy kind of year because I've got both these books coming out. Um, But yeah, that's the thing that's not quite out, but, you know, very, very shortly will be. Uh, unleashed upon the world. So it's been a busy uh, year so far. Now, are you a Winnipeg native? Uh, not really, but, you know, I've spent a, probably most of my time here. Like, I grew up in small town, Ontario, and I moved to Winnipeg uh, just before you going to university. I did two degrees here, uh, English and film undergraduate, and then an English master's degree with a sort of film-ish thesis. Uh, and then I went to Calgary for four years, uh, to do a PhD in English um, literature and creative writing. Um, and then I came back, and I sort of specialized in Canadian literature and film again uh, with the kind of more experimental bent. Uh, and then I came back to Winnipeg uh, you know, after, you know, for, you know, after getting my PhD 
And again, like I said, I've been kind of working as a sessional instructor, um, which is sort of like, you know, an adjunct professor in the States there. So yeah, so I've been here, you know, most of the time, most of my adult life, but not technically, you know, kind of native of here. So I'm kind of, you know, I moved, I guess I came here around 98, you know, quite late uh, compared to, you know, when Pays was doing stuff or the kind of, but the Winnipeg Film Group, of course, is still very active and you know, kind of a new uh, boom. So I was kind of on the wave of the people who were very influenced by these uh, filmmakers from the 80s, like Madden and Pays. So I got to kind of know, when Pays was already gone, but I got to kind of know Madden. Um, George Tolles is my thesis advisor in my master's degree. You know, that's kind of how I got introduced to that whole realm, was more or less to uh, George. Now, I know there are other Canadian filmmakers than the guys that are from Winnipeg, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even looking across the, the gamut today as far as major Canadian filmmakers that are presently working, you know, Adam McGoyne has new things out, David Cronenberg is working on things, there are, of course, a lot of other directors that I'm not mentioning, but what do you think that it is about Winnipeg in particular that had that kind of core group of, like, the Klim Q, Tolls, Madden, Pays, like, this group of guys that were all kind of cross-pollinating in the early 80s to kind of branch out and and become these better-known directors? You know, it's a really good question, and uh, I think a part of the answer is just the Winnipeg Film Group itself, just for whatever reason that has been a real flashpoint uh, for, um, you know, creative people interested in filmmaking in this uh, city, certainly. Uh, but the other thing, uh, there's a couple other, so just it has been a sort of lightning rod for talent in, in that way in a while. Um, but the other thing that I think, there's sort of two other things I think are kind of unique or different about Winnipeg that I, you know, I think gesture towards an answer to that question. And one is just the fact that Winnipeg, although it's you know a, l- a large city, it's still in many ways a kind of a, it has a sort of feel of a small town in certain regards. It's very sort of interconnected. You know, people know one another, uh, and there's a lot of sort of stumbling across. Uh, like everyone sort of has a friend of a friend connection within the city, uh, and one of the sort of effects of that creatively has been that, unlike other places I've lived or visited the different arts uh, groups are really intermingled. Like the musicians know the filmmakers, the filmmakers know the visual, video artists, the video artists know the writers, you know. Those people really talk to one another and do stuff together. Uh, and even just where the film group is located in Winnipeg is right across the hall from it is, you know, a video arts collective right on the floor above it in the same building is the uh, two literary journals, you know, there's, there's all sorts of sort of just ways that the different arts disciplines have overlapped. So I think you get a lot of kind of cross-discipline uh, creativity and, you know, people working together on things, which I haven't really seen as exclusively or as extensively, I should say, in other places. Uh, the other thing I think is just kind of unique or odd about Winnipeg, uh, just relative to, say, Toronto or Vancouver, like these larger uh, filmmaking centers, is that in Winnipeg you have this it's a weird hopelessness. <laughs> you know, there's a sense that you can't succeed here. Uh, like, while not precisely true, I think that's sort of like this weird 
hopelessness in the water. And what I've noticed is that people, the stakes seem to be very low in Winnipeg because success seems so far away that people tend to just experiment more. And they tend, I think, generally speak, my perception of it at least is that people feel less pressure to succeed uh, and so just do whatever they kind of are interested in doing rather than trying to chase some illusory market. Uh, And, you know, I think that that in some way has been a useful thing for Winnipeg. And I certainly know that guys like uh, Madden and ClimQ also, you know, almost kind of took up the invisibility of Winnipeg uh, in the cultural landscape as a challenge. Uh, And so I think there's a sort of a combination of different things that, you know, have kind of made Winnipeg a place uh, that weirdly has been almost overrepresented uh, in terms of, yeah, the kind of art and uh, people that have come out of it. I imagine it's safe to say that when you were growing up, you were a pretty big film fan. Yeah, I've always had this kind of weird film interest, although you know, I primarily have come at that. I mean, I've directed a couple of short films. I directed a short, silent uh, comedy called Spoonie Bee about a sort of 70s pimp in a silent film uh you know, the look and feel of a sort of silent, almost a film that had been lost to history that nobody bothered to preserve, that I kind of, you know, did with hand, hand processing and sitting and stuff. Uh, but mostly I've been, you know, our screen, like worked in film as a screenwriter. Uh, and, uh, you know, just again, kind of working as a writer, generally speaking. So uh, I kind of come at film, I guess, to say, yeah, more of as a scholar and a fan, uh, a little bit from the kind of writing perspective. But yeah, I don't know. I've just always been fascinated by yeah, just film and, and, and literature, uh, primarily those two things. And I also, like I say, was very lucky in my undergraduate and then and also my master's degree to kind of hook up with George Tolles and get uh, very friendly with him. He kind of was teaching classes literally called film and literature where you would you know watch, read books and watch the films that were made out of the books or watch films and book and read books that were kind of thematically or artistically kind of related or that he felt were related somehow. Uh, so he was a huge influence on me in terms of, uh, again, just you know, being interested in uh, certain types of films or getting exposed to things. Was he the, the gateway then to kind of the, the world of the Winnipeg filmmakers? In many respects, yeah. Um, because he and Steve Snyder, who was still teaching there at the time, uh, he's since no longer teaching at Manitoba, but uh, although George still is, um, but those two were really big uh, gateways, uh, as you say, um, just because they were showing films, you know. And uh, of course, I got—I was one of those people who, when I took a class, somebody I would go and you know, find all the stuff they wrote and read all their books and, you know, whatever. And so with George, I got. Um, I mean, of course, I read his book when it came out, and I, you know, realized he's he'd been writing his films. I took a screenwriting class with George, uh, and so I got very interested very quickly in Guy Madden's stuff. I actually, at one point, this is kind of a funny story. Uh, at one point, I was taking this class of George's, uh, and kind of I hadn't watched any Guy Madden films, but I was kind of interested in his stuff, and I saw there was a Guy Madden like little mini film festival going on uh, at you know, the Cinematheque. And so uh, there was this girl in this class that I, you know, thought was kind of cute. And I was talking to her a little bit. I'm like, oh, she likes film. You know, maybe I'll ask her to this film, uh, you know, Guy Madden film thing. So I kind of get to talking to her and I'm, you know, asking, kind of like broach, you know, coolly, I think, hey, you want to go check out these 
got an animal with me, and she just kind of recoils from the idea. And she's like, oh, God, Madden's films. Why do I want to go watch the Bills again? And what I learned later is that she was actually dating Guy Madden at the time. Oh. <laughs> I had asked Guy Madden's girlfriend out to his own film festival, uh, not having a clue, of course, you know, what was going on. But then, you know, later on, I got to meet Guy and became kind of friendly with him. <laughs> but it was kind of a weird, you know, scenario. That was my weird sort of, you know, awkward gateway in, I guess. So why John Pace's Crime Wave? Why focus an entire book on John Pace's Crime Wave? You know, there's a lot of kind of weird reasons for it, I guess. One was just, um, I mean, I just, I, I was doing volunteer work for the Winnipeg Film Group um, because I wanted, you know, access to cameras and stuff. Like I say, I was kind of learning to do hand processing and, and starting to do a bit of writing and directing and working on people's films around town uh, as I was doing these degrees as well. And I basically had, you know, heard of the film, of course, by that point, but I hadn't seen it. And I'd seen um, some of uh, springtime in Greenland, uh, and some retros- some showing somewhere, and I was just fascinated with that film. Uh, so I, you know, went, basically I volunteered to do distribution uh, work for the film group, where my job was to make copies of the films, and like make screeners, so they could mail the VHS screeners out. So uh, I basically, you know, made copies of these John Pace films for myself to take home and. Uh, basically stole a copy of Crime Wave. You know, there were some VHS copies from its kind of VHS release that I got at one point in the States. Um, and then some just other VHS screeners. So I kind of, you know, snuck one home and watched it. And I was just amazed by this thing. I was just fascinated by it. That was so funny. Uh, but even more than that, I felt like there were these always weird moments where he seemed to have this, just this control uh, over the tone and it was able to sort of shift the tone on a dime. Like the moment that really cinched that my love of the film was that part where um, Stephen Penny is, you know, it's in the sort of final beginning and ending to Crime Wave and Stephen Penny is remembered as sort of narrating or, or it's being narrated the story of Stephen Penny's youth and sort of how every time the TV turns off, uh, he hears just sort of monstrous sounds. Uh, and that's sort of a sudden shift from like the kind of blaring, bombastic music to like, and the sudden, you know, almost entire technical or tones to the, you know, he turns the TV off and all the lights go dark and it goes completely silent. That just sudden, like, spin on a dime shift in tone to me was just fascinating. And I'd only ever seen that sort of command and suddenness in terms of you know, altering the atmosphere in Lynch films. Uh, and it just really, really got to me. And so I started kind of watching it obsessively almost at that point. But then later on, the sort of story of how that I ended up doing a book on it, is I kind of realized accidentally that I had become the world's authority on crime wave almost, like almost accidentally I'd become one of the authorities on crime wave because I ended up doing a conference paper on it uh, and then I also was interviewed about it because I'd done this conference paper. Uh, I was interviewed about basically, uh, you know, why, what I thought of the film uh, for a kind of documentary that was being made by Bravo TV on Crime Wave. And since I had done those two things, John Pace started contacting me saying like, hey, do you know anybody who could maybe help me try to, could you help me look at these margin materials? Maybe I can try to get this on DVD or whatever. So I kind of, kind of, kind of like weirdly and accidentally, just because I was one of the only people doing anything uh, with this film still, you know, most of the work on it had been done, you know, much uh, longer 
go, you know, closer to its release or just shortly, not too far thereafter. Um, so I kind of found this weird position where I was like one of the only people who was interested in crime life in the world, like in terms of like being a film scholar and you know, somebody who might write or, you know, papers about it. Uh, and I actually, Bart Beatty, who's one of the co-editors of the series, was on my thesis defense committee um, at the University of Calgary. And I had, uh, after I defended my PhD thesis, I broached with him. I knew he had done this, started doing this series of books. And I told him, you know, you should get somebody to do a book on crime life. And he kind of brushed me off like, yeah, whatever. But then a couple of years later, uh, they came back to me about that idea, saying, you know, not only are we interested maybe in a book on crime wave, but you should you know, think about writing it. And so I kind of jumped at that uh, opportunity just because you know, I still had to write the book and get it through a peer review process and everything. So it wasn't, you know, kind of a done deal or it by any means. But um, I was very you know, kind of interested in writing about it just because, uh, one, I loved the film and just thought I was doing some really fascinating things. Um, but two, I felt almost like so little had been done and written about the film uh, that it almost needed, I, I felt, some sort of radical redress. Like, I kind of felt like, well, the perfect revenge for this film would be for somebody to sort of, for it to go suddenly from being an almost unwritten about film to having this, you know, the longest book in the entire series uh, written about it. And this kind of weird, extensive look. So that's one of the reasons I kind of have this bizarre, kind of almost insanely uh, close attention uh, paid to the film. Almost this, this sort of radical redress for its neglect when it's, you know, still, I think, one of the best films ever made in this country. And certainly one of the funniest. Just to put this out there, I absolutely loved your book. Oh. It was... Great, a terrific read. Definitely not a light read. I think you warned me beforehand that it wasn't, you know, something that uh, you know, just kind of pick up and flip through and pick out your favorite uh, stories and just kind of go from there. But so well written, so well researched, and I love the close reading of not only the film itself, but the you know, the original ending and then even going into the three worlds of Nick and the obsession of Billy Botsky. So getting that whole career of John Pays and going into what makes Crime Wave the movie that it is. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Oh, well, thanks. I'm really glad to hear that. You know, I kind of went on to this book with the idea that, you know, well, so little had been written about Pays um, that one, uh, I didn't really have a lot of stuff to draw on in the sense of published materials. So I felt, you know, I've got to do a fair bit of kind of original looking at this thing. Um, although I did try to kind of draw on basically everything that had been published about it. Uh, but then, too, I kind of felt like maybe there'll never be anything written about Pays again. Um, so, you know, unless I kind of, so I'll just shove everything into this book. Um, and so I was very thrilled with the press uh, to kind of allow me uh, to make the book. The book is much longer than it's allowed to be according to the press guidelines for this series. Uh, it's longer than the book on Denise Arcand's two films. Um, but uh, they did, you know, they never really grumbled about it and they were really great. Uh, I, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm not thrilled to hear that because I felt like I was trying to do a bit of a weird balancing act. Um, it, like I say, pushing all these sort of different things in, but it really felt like they kind of needed to be there, you know? Like that, that whole original ending of the film is 
it's, it's interesting in itself. The sort of story of it is interesting. Um, the sort of weird way that Pays decided to do this new ending and the reasons why are, to me, just fascinating on so many levels. Uh, and also those Three Worlds of Nick films and the Billy Bosky film where he's also got this silent, you know, this kind of quiet man figure that he has in Crime Wave. It just really felt to me, watching all those films again, that um, they were somehow of a piece, you know, that it was, I think, really hard. I didn't think I could really talk about Crime Wave fully without kind of addressing uh, those other films. Um, and I was worried, you know, about burning people out about it. Um, because those films are even harder to find in some ways than Crime Wave. People who have seen this film often haven't seen, uh, except for Springtime in Greenland, like those other uh, Quiet Man films. But they are really a fascinating sort of thing to look at as a group. And and really those films, uh, which I, I, I presume you've managed to see them, because I think I heard you talking about them in, a, in your other broadcast. Uh, but, uh, I mean, they're weirdly fascinating little pieces. And you've got, you know, cameras by Guy Madden in them and stuff. They've got all this sort of weird interest. You mentioned a couple of the other f- films that are covered in the mm-hmm. series. What are some of the other things that are in this book series? It's a great little book series. The University of Toronto Press does it. It's called the Cinema Canada, or sorry, Canadian Cinema Series. Uh, so they've done, this is the 11th book. Um, let me just open it up and look at it for you. But the other ones are, it started, the first one is Bard Beatty. Uh, they did a history of violence. They've got a kind of weird, eclectic group. And again, they're all these sort of classic Canadian films. There's a history of violence by Cronenberg, The Decline of the American Empire and the Barbarian Invasions by Denis Arcand. They did uh, Adam McGoin's The Adjuster, The Far Shore by Joyce Wheatland, uh, A Married Couple by Alan King, My Winnipeg by Guy Madden is one of my favorite ones that they've done. Uh, a guy named Darren Wurschler, who's you know, a fascinating writer, uh, did that one. Hardcore logo, Bruce McDonald. Uh, Going Down the Road by Don Shabib, uh, Passage by John Walker. They did Ginger Snaps by John Fawcett. Um, and I think they've, I can't remember what they've got on the list coming up, but I know I'm reading the Ginger Snaps one right now. And I've read all, basically all the other ones at this point. But yeah, it's great though. Weird, you know, brilliant little series. The My Winnipeg book is really excellent. Like I say, I think uh, George, I remember... Um, talking to Guy and George about it at one point, they were both very pleased with it, uh, how it had turned out. One of the things that I enjoyed that you, it's it's almost a necessary thing in uh, any sort of uh, Canadian study that I read, and I think you handled it very well as far as looking at Crime Wave as a very uniquely Canadian film and the way that Canada shapes the narrative. And I, I really appreciated the way that you were able to kind of work that in, really give it a good discussion, and not beat us over the head with it. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a weird sort of thing uh, in Canadian cinema. It almost inevitably comes back to the difference, uh, well, to our relationship with the U.S. and to you know, Canada cinema's kind of strained and awkward relationship with U.S. cinema. Because throughout our history, it, there's been this tendency, and it's certainly this perception amongst filmmakers that, you know, we are either copying Americans or not drawing enough influence from Americans. There seems to be a sort of, you know, strange, uh, strange sort of, uh, I guess you'd say, anxiety of influence um, in terms of, like, Canada's relationship to the U.S. And some people think that is uh, fundamentally problematic uh, in the sense that we should, you know, just fully depart from 
Uh, I mean, that's in some ways what the National Film Board was uh, an attempt to do, uh, was start to move away fundamentally from the kind of things they were doing in Hollywood and develop a different uh, sort of film culture. And then other, and then sort of reaction against that in some ways were people like Pays, uh, who wanted to, you know, have and showcase this American uh, influence. But at the same time, I think there's a kind of anxiety about that that kind of comes into crime wave in, in like, I think, a fascinating sort of way. And it's always just interesting plot, like, aspects, you know, that idea. Like, like in the film, we get almost this reverse trip into Kansas uh, instead of, you know, like, rather than fleeing Kansas. And it's this weird, toxic landscape full of billboards. Like, you almost get this sort of, you know, impression of the U.S. as a sort of bizarre, paranoid dream uh, that, you know, some Canadian might stereotypically have. It's a very kind of interesting and weird kind of critique of Canadian critiques of the U.S. Uh, that I think pays is really brilliantly sort of, and finally kind of paying off. But even if you're not, you know, sort of inside that Canadian, you know, imagination in a sense, I think there's a way to, you know, just sort of get all, you know, it just, it just comes across as very funny and strange and, and fascinating in a way. Well, for a movie that I've seen probably, I don't know, a hundred times at least, you managed to really open my eyes to a lot of things that I hadn't thought about before, especially this whole idea of the trip into Kansas and the Dr. Jolly character as being this, you know, almost wizard in reverse, you know, granting um, Stephen Penny this power, but also being a madman at the same time. Yeah, that I, that specific idea is not original to me. I think it's Prevere's idea, but I, I forget who I'm kind of quoting from. But I sort of developed it a bit further. Uh, you know, there's there's very few things that have been written about this film, like I say, that, but they're 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 very good. Um, and I know um, I know I grabbed that particular kind of Kansas idea from somebody and then started running with it in a kind of crazy way. Uh, but it's you know it's a fascinating, weird insight. Um, I think, you know, so I can kind of, because it's not entirely original to me, I feel like I can bolster how, you know, how great that idea is. <laughs> you know, it is kind of a weird, interesting thing. Like you say, it's a, there's a strange kind of way of looking at the film that, uh, even especially in terms of its technicolor kind of aping, it makes it kind of interesting um, compared to, you know, that sort of Oz narrative. There's all sorts of fascinating things. Like, I've probably watched it as, you know, maybe more than anybody in the world at this point, other than maybe Pays, uh, or, or possibly you. It sounds like you've, you know, gone through it pretty extensively. But, yeah, like, even when I watched it again, like, when they we did a release of this book in Winnipeg, uh, the film group screened the film again, and even I was noticing, you know, more things that, you know, Pays just packed it so tightly with all this amazing sort of stuff. The other thing that I never really thought of was the way that the you know Neil Laurie as Dr. Jolly can kind of play into him as the Hank Williams impersonator too, and just the way that you kind of tie those threads together. Also, I found to be very enjoyable to read that. It's interesting because you know that kind of thing is, I think, as I mentioned in the book, like it's a sort of standard thing that you see in those kinds of cash strap productions where everyone just has to do a different you know, role, you just got so many people around, they got to put on a new hat. But Pace has this weird way of just, he gives them the same hat, and he makes it really strangely clear. And because Crime Whip has that metafictional structure, you know, he just seems to be, he just is layering in all these weird sort of connected uh, 
weird connected parts, and there's all sorts of strange ways to interpret it. Like he just, he, he is a very shy, sort of soft-spoken guy, um, but he has a sort of masterful uh, command of this stuff. Like he just seems to just intuitively, uh, and you know, very clinically, almost in, in a sense, just have a, a knowledge of how to do the best thing. Like even in ways, and, and it kind of becomes a strange little puzzle uh, in a sense, although at the same time, just, you know, it's kind of, you know, straightforwardly funny and, you know, very engaging and doesn't have a hermetic uh, kind of quality that you sometimes get with those types of films. It's, you know, yeah, he, he's doing a lot of really weird, fascinating things. But I think just the structure of the film, like the fact that it is a sort of self-reflexive thing, uh, it just kind of amps up any even potentially accidental uh, sort of connectedness right yeah it's not like this film is one of these movies where you're just like oh wow there's got to be a whole lot of other things that i'm not picking up on when you watch it the first time it's like like not like i don't know this this thing where it's like uh you know watch watching certain movies and you're just like mm-hmm. okay i i think i understand what's going on but i know that there's a whole lot more under the surface instead you're just having a great time and then as you watch it more you pick up a little bit more but to read what you have done with it and just the way that you have done this close reading it really like i said it opened up my eyes to a whole lot of other things where i was just like oh yeah oh yeah that makes a lot a lot of sense and with pays being that kind of you know very very um, smart man you know I've had conversations mm-hmm. with him before and he is just such a pleasure to talk to and so knowledgeable about film and and the craft and everything that it seems like he's one of these guys where it's like yeah there's probably not a whole lot of accidental stuff in here no he's he's got it uh, you know he's got it in his head and you know has this kind of precise vision but as you say uh, I mean it's never mystifying um, it's never, you know, like the Donnie Darko situation of you're not really right. sure. It's enjoyable and you're interested, but you're not really sure what went on. You know, and there's this kind of puzzling quality. Uh, it's not that at all, uh, but it does have all these layers that, you know, you can just keep, you know, peeling off. Uh, even although you can just ignore it also and just kind of enjoy the film. It's got a very fascinating sort of, uh, it's just a consummate craftsman in that uh, sense, even though he's doing some very strange things that you really think shouldn't work. Uh, like, really, in many respects, to just describe the film blankly, it almost makes, you know, it sounds like a fun little uh, almost eight-and-a-half parody, um, but it's not like that at all. You know, it's some sort of strange, bizarre, you know, very funny, uh, very kind of engaging and silly and uh, even cute and, you know, kind of you know, heartwarming in places uh, with, you know, this wonderful little Kim, uh, Evo Kovacs, and there's all sorts of great, strange, uh, just watchable, uh, just just really fun and engaging, and it holds up in so many ways. Um, for, you know, a completely cast-strapped, you know, bootstrapped production made, like you say, you know, in the middle of nowhere in the middle of Canada at a time when really nobody's doing this sort of a thing. Nobody like uh, is even some of the things that you know are going to come in with Lynch. You know, pays a sort of anticipated particular things that are going to crop up in Lynch and Pee Wee's uh, Big Adventure and so on. Uh, he's doing it just a little earlier in those uh, Quiet Man films, and then kind of perfecting them in a way with this Crime Wave, which is coming out right around the time of those films. 
And I love the way that he's playing with the medium as well and just using that lower budget to really create his creativity to, to make him face these challenges. And that's what I enjoyed about your book as well was not only am I getting this reading of the film and everything, but you're telling me a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, like the whole idea of the streetlight that not the one that falls on his head, but the one that we see flickering to life. I never in a million years did not think that that was a real streetlight. No, neither did I. I mean, one of the great, I couldn't really have done this book without the participation of someone, of Pace himself. So I was really thrilled. Uh, My big fear when I kind of settled on writing this book was that Pace wouldn't participate or wouldn't be, because he has a strange reputation for whatever reason as being a sort of, you know, somebody who's very uh, unwilling to talk to, you know, interviewers or, you know, wants to exert a very kind of amount of control over things. But, I mean, I never once had any problem at all with him being weird or not forthcoming. You know, if anything, you know, I made sort of mild tentative moves towards him and he was, you know, very gracious. He sent me copies of the, sent me the copy of the film with the original ending to watch. He sent me the, you know, copies of the scripts to read. He answered every question I asked him and, you know, told me about that streetlight. Uh, I mean, all sorts of, he was extremely, you know, forthcoming and helpful and um, really just, you know, uh, the book really wouldn't be what it is um, without his participation for sure. I was tickled pink, but also a little saddened by the story that you tell in the intro to the book about your friend who really doesn't even believe that the film exists. No, I, I, that's a true story. Like, it sounds kind of made up, but when I was telling her about this book I was going to write and, you know, thinking of doing it, I was kind of, these are the ideas that I'm kind of, this is what the film's about, and she just wouldn't believe me. She, she looked it up on Wikipedia and, you know, thought it was it sounds so absurd to her that she just really refused to believe it existed there's so little information about it out in the world that she thought i had faked it and it was a hoax and of course because i've kind of known again like for writing this kind of experimental fictions and stuff uh, it was a plausible sort of hoax that i would have done this um in fact i was kind of working on a novel at the time that had a very similar conceit in some ways and there's actually been a couple uh, canadian novels where you know uh, Michael Turner wrote a novel called American Whiskey Bar that was about a sort of fictitious film and describing it and so on. And, um, you know, nevertheless, you know, of course, the film is real. And, you know, she, I think, now believes me. I did send her a copy of the book, but she hasn't confirmed that she's actually, you know, believes it exists still or not. There's a glockenspiel-based score that really got her. Like, there's some line on Wikipedia about the flute and glockenspiel based score, and she thought, well, that just can't be true. But, uh, you know, I assured her that it was. When it comes to the top, why do so few guys make it? That's a good question. Uh, you know, uh, I, think, I think they just can't take the idea to the end. Uh, you know, I, get, I do a lot of, like I say, teaching in creative writing, and, uh, you know, again, I'm kind of like literary uh, and, you know, film scholar and the sort of I'm kind of a constant critic I guess you'd say in a sense um, and the thing that I notice a lot of, and what really frustrates me about a lot of work that people that artists make is that they tend to sort of have an idea that's brilliant and they'll run with that idea but they won't go to the end of the idea and that results in like in some ways my criticism of the original ending of Crime Life when I do kind of discuss it 
uh, my sort of position on it is that you know it has these uh, kind of interesting qualities, but it doesn't really go. It doesn't really follow the logic that's been established, and it doesn't take it to its extreme ends. Whereas the reshot ending that pays, you know, did append finally on the crime wave, it does that. You know, it just takes his sort of initial core uh, kind of brilliant idea, and, and it really takes it to its extreme sort of final position. I find that a lot of artists stop for some reason, whether because the market seems to demand it or because they have some particular fear or they simply have an inability uh, to just take that thing that they're doing all the way to its sort of end point. Uh, but I think Repays really kind of, you know, did that and really sort of took, you know, this germ uh, that was crime wave and kind of really developed it as far as it would go. Uh, and, and really, if you've got to go backwards to the quiet man, when it crops up in Billy Bosky there, he kind of just, from that point, moves through the three wheels of neck and then reaches crime wave, and he just takes that idea pretty much to its absolute extreme terminus. Uh, the sort of unfortunate side of that is then he quits and stops making those films. Um, but he does, in some ways, uh, you know, to talk to him, certainly, you know, he didn't feel there was another place to take the idea. Um, and I, you know, the more I, I mean, it, I mean, it often gets framed in some ways that there's this tragic story and pays, you know, like Stephen Penny kind of met with this block that he couldn't move past. And while I see that as sort of, you know, what the film is about on a fundamental level, um, I don't think it's really necessarily true uh, of pays. And I think crime maybe is that sort of, you know, perfect ending of this you know, development. Um, whereas other people, like you say, don't really get to that top. But once you're at the top, I mean, there's only one place to go, which is down. Uh, so I think pays us, you know, much as I would like to see him make more films like this, I think he was kind of wise in some ways to just stop what he was doing and either, you know, start a new thing, which, you know, uh, he's kind of done as a director for hire. Yeah, which, you know, is always interesting to look at what he's done as a director for hire. Sometimes you see what he, you know, you see pays within that. Sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, seeing, uh, I mean, top of the food chain to me yeah. is, is, I won't say it's equally as brilliant, but there are so many amazing parts of that. And as a whole, it is just a terrific film. And that's one of those, like, since it's a lot easier to find, I tend to recommend that to people just so they can see some of Pace's work. Yeah, Top of the Food Chain is really great. And I, I kind of briefly, I think, have about a paragraph on it. But uh, at that point, I really just felt, you know, I'm, I've got too much stuff in this book. <laughs> so... They're going to start telling me to rip things out of it. Uh, so I didn't really get too far into that uh, work. But, you, but I think you're, I agree with you. Tell the Food Chain is a great film. Um, and, you know, and absolutely you know, worthy of people watching it. And, and like you say, it's much, much easier to find. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, it's, you know, it'd be nice if Crown Wave was more available. I'm really hoping it becomes more available. There's some possibility for that, given that the film has, again, uh, changed hands. Uh, through an accidental sort of transfer where one company is bought by another. Um, so we'll see, you know, but uh, there's a possibility, I guess, um, of some you know, new life for it. Unfortunately, you know, there's a kind of long-term contract that was initially signed, and it has really sort of awkward um, parts to it, I suppose. But um, And, you know, people just aren't necessarily interested in releasing a film that was never a huge hit. Um, but, uh, you know, 
all the technology is changing is in some ways becoming easier to do those sorts of releases. So I'm really, you know, crossing my fingers for a, a new kind of availability for this film. I, I certainly the book. My dream is that the book will help spur that sort of thing forward. That was one of the big reasons, to get back to your other, earlier question, one of the big reasons I did this book was just to try to help get Crime Wave re-released. Uh, you know, if there's a book about it, maybe, you know, there's some sort of cultural interest in it uh, that the book can maybe attest to uh, that might spur forth a kind of re-release. So you know, hopefully that's going to help Taze make that case. Do you think you can shame the world into bringing Crime Wave out? I sure hope so. I don't, I don't uh, uh, know. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's such an amazing... I mean, the fact that it's been so durable uh, and still is on people's radar you know, all this time later. I mean, it's almost 30 years later at this point. Um, you know, here we are talking about it. Uh, and there's a book about it, and you know it's really still chugging forth at its slow and steady pace. So the book comes out early 2014, and almost right out of the gate, you get interviewed by Eva Kovacs. Mm-hmm. What was that like to be interviewed by the person who's narrating, half narrating, the story of Crime Wave for you, the writer of the book of Crime Wave? Yeah, I mean, it was beyond strange, but somehow very, you know, I mean, Eva Kovacs became a news anchor in town. I knew she was uh, a news anchor in this city. Uh, she actually, when I started, was writing the book at one point, had retired or, you know, from being a, a, a morning news anchor. Um, and so at one earlier draft of the book, you know, it mentions that she's, you know, no longer on TV. Uh, and then as I was revising the book, she got back on TV um, at another station, if I remember right. So I you know, changed it to reflect that. Uh, and so it's technically up to date. <laughs> and, but I mean, I knew she was out there. I knew there was the possibility uh, of being like interviewed by her for a show. But, I, you know, it's a weird academic book uh, about a film almost nobody has watched. So I didn't you know, really expect that to happen. So it, it was just great that... The book got a surprising amount of press uh, when it was released. Um, and certainly, you know, of course, she's interested in it. But uh, it was very strange. They were showing clips of it on TV. And, you know, uh, it was very surreal for me. Uh, somebody who, you know, wasn't even, I mean, I was, what, five or six years old when this film came out, younger than her. Uh, and uh, so it was uh, very kind of surreal to be, you know, looking in live in the flesh, this, you know, little girl that I've been studying <laughs> under a microscope almost, it felt very strange, but, you know, it was very kind of, you know, she was so enthusiastic and, you know, very kind of uh, childlike even in her sort of, you know, joy that this film was getting some attention again. It was so, uh, and actually funnily, like my friend who uh, you know, didn't really believe the film existed, her coworkers didn't really believe that she had been in a movie <laughs> because it wasn't really available. She hadn't really talked about it a lot because, you know, because it wasn't available. And, um, you know, so she had, you know, the proof finally, I suppose. So how many times as you're telling people, oh yeah, I'm working on this book about crime wave. How many times do people go, oh, the Sam Raimi film? Yeah. 
you know, I got that a couple of times, but because I was mostly working on it when I was in Winnipeg, you know, people, you know, knew what I was talking about, even if they hadn't seen it. So I got a lot less than you expect, but just because I was in Winnipeg, you know, uh, yeah, people think of the Sam Raimi film, which, you know, came out the same year. I mean, what terrible luck. Uh, this, this, this thing has just been played by the worst luck in so many ways uh, in terms of its releasing. But, I mean, it's still out there and still kind of persisting. So I think it'll, ha- it'll have the last laugh. You talked about talking to Pays for this book. Who else did you uh, have to talk to or interview for this one? You know, I talked to a bunch of people kind of, uh, again, who were kind of connected to the city around town. But what I found for the most part was uh, the stuff that Pays was telling me was the most usable. Um, just because it kind of really clearly connected to what I was writing about. But one of the people who's really helpful was Dave Barber, uh, who runs the Cinematheque, which is you know, part of the Winnipeg Film Group here. Um, they're sort of, you know, film movie theater. Um, and, you know, Barber remembered, of course, you know, when Pays was working on this film and some of the first screenings. And Barber was the one, I, if I remember, who actually told me about the alternative ending. Uh, that Pays had had previously on the film. I think he was the first person to bring that to my attention. Um, you know, uh, so I don't know if I even would have pursued that as aggressively as I had, like trying to get a copy of that and do a chapter on it, if Barbara hadn't really convinced me, you know, somebody needed to do that. Um, uh, he, you know, he was kind of talking more about it. It'd be great if somebody could do a DVD release and put this original ending on so people could watch it and everything. Um, but, you know, this is almost the closest thing. It's gotten to a DVD release, me describing what it looks like, uh, everything that happens in it, I guess. So, but so you know, uh, there are a lot of people who are really helpful, but Barbara was particularly um, helpful. And of course, you know, uh, Guy was very gracious to, uh, you know, not just talk to me a little bit about the film, but uh, which he wasn't you know, super involved in, but more so, at, you know, to give me. You know, a blurb for the back of the book and say something nice about Pays in the film, which was a big influence on him at one point. Um, you know, Pays is really an influence on a lot of those figures, but certainly, you know, Guy was is the most well known of the people who were directly influenced by him. You mentioned a little bit as far as what you're working on now with the uh, the the poetry and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on with the book? Are you doing like readings or like touring it around, or what's happening with that? You know, all that's a bit of a standstill right now uh, because there's some sort of you know developments for the fall. We're gonna, I guess, the press has sort of decided to do this. Although the book's out and available and people can buy it, they're going to kind of relaunch it in a sense in the fall. There's all sorts of sort of stuff that is in motion, I guess, to try to get uh, some more attention to the book and the film. But I, I that stuff hasn't been 100% confirmed to me yet. But it's you know it's 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 looking good for some sort of thing to happen around the Toronto Film Festival related to the uh, book and the film. But I mean, I don't know for sure what the news is on that so understandable so hey where's the best place for folks to catch up with you and to purchase a copy of crime wave well crime wave is pretty much available i guess you see anywhere um but uh certainly you know to you know i've got it <laughs> and uh my website is just jonathanball.com so i'm j-o-n-a-t-h-a-n-b-a-l-l.com and uh Otherwise, you know, it's on Amazon. It's at Mc- I like to buy things from McNally Robinson, the you know local independent Winnipeg bookstore that's also online. And but it's really you know pretty easily available. The University of Toronto Press has really great you know distribution. They're a big press, 
so you know you, you wouldn't have a hard time finding it anywhere. You know, you might have to order it, uh, but you could certainly get it pretty much through any bookstore at all. Adios, amigo. <laughs>